Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let me begin. I, I'm going to start reading, but I'm only going to read three words, okay? So then we'll get back to reading it all. But the first three words, then it happened. And I just wondered, the writer of Samuel thinking through, okay, here's this kid who was a shepherd who could kill lions and bears. And he comes and he kills Goliath and then he kills thousands and thousands of Philistines. And he rises to the throne. It's like, this is so good. You know, when's it going to stop? Then it happened. Like I was... I, I knew it was too good. I, I was expecting something. And then it happened. What? Adultery. Adultery is what happened. And it's the biggest thing in this chapter. And you could say, well, murder's pretty big. It's in the chapter. Yeah, but murder was to cover up the adultery. Adultery was the big thing. And that's why I gave you the title I did for this sermon. And the title is, How Often Do We Commit Adultery? And I realize there's a sense in which that's an unfair question. I used to hate the question. Somebody used to come up, used to be fun to you know, greet somebody and say, when did you stop beating your wife? And I thought, that's an unfair question. Because it assumes I am beating my wife. And I might not have ever beat my wife. But as soon as you throw it out there, it's public. And people who might hear it think, did he used to beat his wife? So there's a sense in which it's an unfair question because it's based on assumption. But I throw it out there because I want you to be engaged in this subject. How often are you committing adultery? Because it's so easy to read this chapter and say, oh, that's, that's somebody else. That's not me. And I want us to say, no, let's... Let's pull this in a little tighter and think about this. Where am I at on this subject? Why did God leave this here for me to read and see and understand? How often am I right where David was? How often am I committing adultery? Um, the Bible definition of adultery, of course you know, is a lot broader than just physical, sexual intercourse. Look, before we jump in here, look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 26. And 20, well, it's actually 27, 28. Matthew 5, verse 27. Jesus is preaching, and he says, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart so that really broadens this subject he says you've heard it said you shouldn't commit this this thing called physical adultery he says but you realize don't you that when that occurs, it's only after something 
else has already occurred, and that's the sin that's already in your heart. Before physical adultery happens, someone has to lust. They have to lust for something or someone that's beyond the commands of God, that's outside God's will for your life. So I say again, how often are we committing adultery? How often do we, we lust for something or someone? Because when I say something, you realize we're in a marriage relationship with God. And so when you bring that covenant into play, that any time I, I put something or someone ahead of God, I'm being unfaithful to Him who should be first and primary, first commandment in my life. So there's an unfaithfulness to this spiritual relationship I have with God. And if I'm unfaithful to my God, I'm committing this sin of adultery. I'm adulterating the covenant, the relationship that I have with my God. When I lust after things or people prior to Him. So how often are we committing this sin of adultery. Perhaps there's times when your marriage, or perhaps there's times when your single life, you don't just have to be married to commit this, perhaps your single life or your married life, it's, it's gotten a little dull, a little just ho-hum. And so you pull out your smartphone and start checking your Facebook and your Instagram, and as you go through, there she is. And you lust, and you seek after, or there he is, or there it is, and you lust, and you seek after that which creates an unfaithfulness between you and God. How often do we commit adultery? You, you can, I did it this week just to see, so I have an illustration. You can Google one word. I chose, since we're dealing with sexual immorality, I chose the three-letter word, sex. I Googled it. I got, in 10 seconds, I timed it. In 10 seconds, I got over 800 million opportunities to be unfaithful to my God. That's how easy it is to commit the sin of adultery in our age. There are 800 million opportunities for you in 10 seconds. So are we engaged with this subject? Do we, do we see how easy it is to be drawn in to lust after something, someone. This is not just a King David sin. It's so easy for us to be a little dull, bored, drained, weak, tired, and commit the same sin he committed. Let's look at it. What gets us on that path, the path to adultery? Let me read the first five verses. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent 
Joab, his servants, with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. And David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and he inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers, and he took her, and when she had came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. Now, I'll skip down just a minute. Uh, verse 11 Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your wife, the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. The reason I wanted to read verse 11 right there is because it was just interesting to me how little print Bathsheba and Uriah get in this story. If you look at this story like a play, it's an event. It's being presented to you. Who are the main characters? Well, David's a main character, no doubt about it. But Bathsheba's a pretty, main, pretty big character, in my opinion. She has a big part to play in this. And Uriah has a big part to play in this. Bathsheba, the second main character, she gets one three-word line. That's it. The only thing she says in this story is, I am pregnant. Uriah, he is the most godly, faithful, exalted example to us in the story, and he only gets one verse out of 27. Like, this is the guy who's doing everything right, and he gets one verse. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And it, I think it heightens... Really, the, the speed in, in which it is, we're able to, to commit adultery. Because when you, when you look at it, verse 4, what did David do? What did he do to get on this path? Verse 4, he sent, he took, and he lay. That fast. Sent for, took her. And he laid with, committed adultery. I mean, that could have taken five or ten minutes. And I illustrated a minute ago how easy it is for us. We can do it in ten seconds. But you see how fast it is here that he committed adultery. And it's just that fast for us today. Our lives can be ruined. I mean, in, in five or ten minutes, what just happens? The most faithful man in the story, he only gets one verse. His life will never be the same. Your, his wife, Uriah's wife, has been taken and has become known as unfaithful and an adulteress when she wasn't the one to blame. His marriage will never be the same. Will he ever be able to trust her again? His reputation, as good as it is, has been tarnished. Her reputation has been changed. 
completely. She's pregnant, can't get past that. And everyone's going to know it. And yet she's got another who is her husband. And David's relationship's going to be changed. As the king committing this unfaithful act, he will be shamed. What can he do to deal with that in his height of power? And we know if we read ahead, not only will he be shamed, but he will see death in his family from multiple generations because of this sin. This sin changes everything. And for what? Five, ten minutes of pleasure? And it happens to us just that fast. Um, what do we do with that? One of the things we do with it is realize there's no way, when we're on this path to adultery, there's no way we're going to get off this path with just human fortitude. It happens so quick. We need to wake up. I, I love the text of this hymn, Ode to Grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. We need Jesus to hold us and to keep us from sinning. We are on the path to sinning. Two things that text tells us that got David on this path. One is his laziness to perform and the second was his looking for pleasure. Look first at the laziness of performance. There in verse 1, it says, second phrase, in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle. Who's David? He's a king. He was supposed to go out to battle. We see later on in the story, he does go out to battle. So he's capable of being the king who goes out to battle. There's no inability here. It's like, oh, he's been doing that. He's very successful at it, and he finally got old and doesn't do it. No, no, that's not the problem. He is still very capable and able to go out to battle, but he chooses to stay home. Read the king's job description. This is the time when kings are supposed to go to battle, and he chooses not to complete that part of his job. Uh, I'll let... I'll let Joab, he's such a great captain, he's a good, good second man, he's going to go, he's going to take care of it. And they're very successful in battle here, but David chooses to stay home. Um, you, know, you know, to realize that before he commits adultery, he's already sinning, he's already got problems. He's committing sins of omission, he's failing to do what he's supposed to do. He's failing to fulfill his job description. Review your job description. I'm not just talking about the one on a piece of paper at the office kind of thing. You have a job at home. You've got a job in church. You've got a job at school. You've got a job in the marketplace. And each of those places, their obligations. Review your job description. Are you ever lazy in performance? Because when we're lazy in performance... We've got time for something else. We've got time to pull out that smartphone. I got some time here. Let me 
Let me go back to Facebook and Instagram and see, see what I can see. And it's during that time that you realize, I'm on the path to lust. Because I'm not doing what I need to be doing, what I've called to do. I've got these jobs and I'm, I'm pushing them aside for whatever reason. We need to think about sin comes when we get lazy with our callings. You ever seen a stagnant pool? What happens? Stagnant water collects filth. And many times when we're idle, not doing what it is God's called us to do, in the different spheres that he's called us to do it in, we're on the path to unfaithfulness. We've already started the sin, that neglect of God's calling to us to seek his glory and his honor first. So that's where David was. Second, then he goes looking for pleasure. Verse 2, now when evening came, David arose from his bed and he walked around. It's like, that's his internet. He's, he's looking around. And he's looking for pleasure. And then it happened. He saw Bathsheba. There she was. She's just doing her normal routine. But he sees her. Um, he could have done a lot of things. He said, could have said, I made a covenant not to look over that way. I, 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 I make a covenant to be faithful to God. I, I, I set up some parameters, some boundaries. He, there's all sorts of things he could do, but he doesn't. He chooses, no, I'm king. I deserve more in life. I deserve pleasure. Instead of saying, going through his life, no, I, what I really crave most is just God's pleasure, not mine. God's purpose, God's commands, God's way, God's glory. He's not there. He's just looking out for himself. And that idleness takes him into a very lustful condition. It's interesting. Not only did he get there, but after he got there, he was warned. Don't go there. But he doesn't pay attention to the warning. The, 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 the warning is, so David sent and inquired about the woman. It's interesting. He never calls her in this passage anything but the woman. She's got a name. But he just refers to her as the woman. And he's immediately warned as, as nicely as he could as he inquires about her. Uh, verse 3, he inquires about the woman. And one said, well, I know who she is. And notice the description in verse 3. This, this is Bathsheba. We know her name. The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. There's the warning. The restrictions of marriage and family are all around her. This is Bathsheba. She's not in this world by herself. Every girl is daddy's little girl. First, Bathsheba, the warner tells, is a daughter. You don't go take a daughter. That dad may rise up and kill you. Do you not get what you're about to do here? You, didn't, you don't inquire about daughters. You don't lust after daughters. You don't go there. Furthermore, so not only is there this warning of this family relationship, but there's the warning, not only that, but this man, this father gave her in marriage to Uriah. 
Now she has another one who is over her for her protection. So you're warned, secondly, don't ever go after another man's wife. That would be lunacy, right? So he was on this path because he was lazy. He was on this path because he was looking for pleasure. Then he gets full warning and still proceeds down that path. Look at Proverbs 6, 32. I, I encourage especially teenagers to be reading through Proverbs in their teen years and family devotions to go through this because it deals with so many of the temptations that you get when you get out into the world and here's it just deals with it so straightforwardly I, I love this portion of God's word for this kind of thing Proverbs 6 32 can't be more straightforward than this the one who commits adultery with a woman is what stupid I mean you can't get any more straightforward than that you're lacking sense you're a lunatic the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense, and he who would destroy himself does it. Just, you can't get any more forceful. If you go down this path, it will literally destroy you. How often do we get on this path of adultery? It's a path that leads nowhere but to destruction. Lord, deliver us. We're fools for being on this path at any given time, and we're creating enemies that should come kill us, a dad, a husband. We're creating a public, a church that should be against us. Is that smart? It's the path of destruction. And you and I know we're living in a culture that's so on that path, and it's so easy for us to get there as well. What happens? What are the consequences? Marriage dies. They have a child. She's pregnant, and that child dies as a result of this sin. Marriage with between David and others dies, and marriage between Uriah and Bathsheba dies, reputation dies, um, growth in the body of Christ dies. I think we get that strong in Psalm 51. Um, the law of God dies. When you start breaking the law of God, you, you're saying my standards are more important than God's standard. This, the penalty for adultery in David's day was death. Instead of dying, he puts to death the law of God and becomes guilty of, of killing it and pushing aside that standard that God had given, uh, creating this coven, covenant-breaking uh, culture that uh, they had to go through for a while. Uh, and it was all because he didn't want to confess his own laziness as king and his own personal pursuit of pleasure. You know, where are you at right there? That in your heart... You can confess to God, God, I've, I've gotten slack. I'm not fulfilling all the obligations you've given me on this earth. 
And that idle time is creating in me this desire to lust after people and after things. And I'm seeing that's not a path I want to be on. That path to unfaithfulness is extremely destructive. And most of all, it puts us as an offender before God. And we, we want to be cleansed. We want to be right with Him, not offensive to Him in any of our behavior. So how do we alleviate it? How do we get out of it? As we go on through the chapter, we see David's attempts to alleviate it. Um, he wants to retain control. He's got a lot of power and control as king. So he wants to use his power and control really just to hide sin. And God spends a lot of time on that, perhaps because that's what we like to do. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, God. Nobody has to see or hear this. I'll just say it in my heart. I messed up here. Lord, forgive me. But I don't want this to become known. So let's, let's see if we can't keep this quiet and hide it. And that's what David does. Verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and, um, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, and that's the only time Uriah speaks, The ark in Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I won't do this thing. Like, I got obligations. I'm a soldier. My captain's still camping out in open field and we we have to take one for the team from time to time and we've got to go forward he said I, I can't just sleep here at rest when I know I've got things I need to do it's like wow verse 12 then David said to Uriah stay here today and tomorrow and I'll let you go so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next now David called him so it took him a day to get all this together he was going to create a party and get him drunk so David called him, and he, he ate, and he drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him, so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city, that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there would be valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you... Go so near to the city to fight. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech and the son of Jerob, 
uh, Besheth, did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed, and he came and reported to David all that Joab had sent and said to him. The messenger said to David, The men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. All right, well, there you see it. Uh, David had three, he had plan A, plan B, plan C. Plan A was, I'm going to deal with my sin. I'm just going to go get Uriah. I can do that. I can go get him out of the battle, bring him back home, and I'll just let nature take its course. That's plan A. He'll come home. He'll want to eat. He'll want to get a shower. He'll want to go home and see his wife, and they'll lie together, and everybody will say, the kid is dad's kid. That's plan A. Well, he has Uriah home, and Uriah says, you know, what do you need? And, well, I just want to find out about how the war is going. Okay, don't go back yet. Go on home. And so Uriah goes out, and he doesn't go home. He just sleeps on the king's steps. And David's thinking, crazy guy. You know, why didn't he go home? So, all right, you didn't go home. Why didn't you go home? Well, I I, I sent you home with flowers, man. I gave you a present. This was your chance to impress. And he doesn't. Take it. So, all right, stay a couple days, and they plan a party. So plan B, have a party. Let's get him drunk. Surely when he gets drunk, he'll start missing his wife, and he'll go home. And that's how we'll do this. So they get him drunk. He's got still enough sense that just goes and sleeps on the king's step. Plan B doesn't work. Plan A didn't work. Plan B doesn't work. David says, okay, plan C. Plan C is go back to battle. But here, take this sealed envelope. I got a message for your captain. It's just between me and him. Make sure he gets it alone. So the captain, Joab, gets it. He opens it up and looks in there and it says, I want you to put Uriah on the front line. I want you to put him in the place where people from the wall will likely be shooting. And once he gets there, get your other men to retreat without him knowing it. So basically, he becomes the only target. And he'll die. And so that's exactly what happens. And it's not smart warfare to put your men in harm's way like that. So when the servant comes back and tells David, he says, David, who's a great warrior, is going to say, what in the world were you doing? That was too close. You shouldn't have been that close. When he gets to that point, just say, yeah, but Uriah died. And you'll see that he quiets down. It's like, yes, plan C worked. I've gotten rid of Uriah. Tries to cover up his sin. You know, as I've thought about the cover-up so many times. Um, as you read through that, do you, do you realize from David's perspective, sin's not fun anymore? 
Did you see that? Right after that five or ten minutes with Bathsheba, or even if it was in the evening, it's not fun anymore. Now I've got to figure out how to deal with sin. I've got to try to hide it. I've got to try to cover it. Because I know it's going to be destructive, and I know it's going to be shameful. I know it's going to change my life forever. And so he comes up with plan A, plan B, plan C, all of this trouble that he's putting in to maintain an affair with Bathsheba instead of just admit he was sinful, he was wrong, and let's be done with it. No, he just tries to cover it up, to keep it going. And so many times I've, I've told people in, in counseling situations who've had, a, had an affair, I said, let's stop for just a minute to have kind of an obvious conversation. How much time have you been spending on this affair? Can we be honest? How many emails? How many texts? How many posts go out between you somehow in a given day or in a given week? How many times are you texting this person you're lusting after? And the answers come back, you know, 5, 10, 30, 40, 50 minutes, hours, sometimes hours and hours in a week. I said, okay, here's the obvious point. How much time are you spending on your marriage? Did you spend five minutes a day texting? Did you send your spouse that email? Did you have the conversations that it takes to develop a relationship? And you find every single time, it's like, duh, how stupid it is to get on this path of adultery because if you'd have spent the same amount of minutes or hours on your marriage, you would have one of the best marriages on the planet. If you cultivated it with that many texts, and that many emails, and that many rendezvous. Like, you spend all your time covering up the right relationship to engage in this wrong relationship, whereas if you flip that, you'd have had a wonderful, godly relationship. Numbers 32, 23, your sin will find you out. Another passage I love, Hebrews 11, 24, and 25, it says, Moses determined to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to engage in the passing pleasures of sin. Man, I love that. Moses stopped and he says, I want to I think this through. I have the chance as Pharaoh's son to be king. I don't think I want to go there. I would rather go with the people of God. I know I'll get bad treatment for doing so but I'd rather do what God says than to engage myself in just lust that I can engage in as the son of the king David spends so much time trying to cover up his sin what's the real plan let Jesus cover the sin let Jesus cover the sin confess it 1 John 1 9 you know that right that's that's the verse we call the Christian bar of soap. Do, do you need cleansing? 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't try to cover up your sin. 
Let Jesus cover it. Confess it to Jesus, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if that's where you are this morning, you're, you're, you're on this path of just sinning, lusting, being unfaithful to God. Confess it to him. He's faithful and just to forgive us, forgive us, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Well, what does all of this teach us? Uh, the kingdom's not safe in the hands of sinful men. It only stands in Jesus. It only stands in Jesus. Jesus alone can deal with our sin. Um, well, the last two verses, verse 26 and 27. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned. You know, I bet she mourned, it says she mourned for the time of mourning, verse 27. I don't know what that was. Maybe it was a month. Maybe it's a long time. Maybe it's a day. We have a time of mourning. She mourned. And they probably had a wonderful funeral service. And Uriah was probably exalted with many military honors. Because he was very valiant, very faithful. And I'm sure they were brought in lots of people to say real nice things about him. And she mourned all of that because she was married to a very faithful, righteous, godly man. So all of that takes place. We get just a little bit about it, but that's what's going on. And then, verse 27, And then when the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't you love it when the bottom line is really the bottom line? The bottom line of this story is the bottom line of this story. It's like all of this stuff happens in our world. We try to cover it up. We try to spin it our way. And it's like we sometimes forget there's a God who is taking notes. It's like, here, here's this play. I said, you know, it's like a play. The first actor on the scene is David. He's the king, and you're, you're wowed, but then he doesn't go to battle. He sends his soldiers out. And he starts looking around on the Internet and finds this beautiful babe, and he starts calling her up. And she enters the play, and she's a knockout. And they go off and they have intercourse and commit adultery. And then you're brought to the dad and the husband. And they come in. And then you get to the scenes of cover-up, try to cover all this up like it never happened. And, and, and there's nobody in the play to present the will of God. And it's like right at the end, a narrator comes out. And so he's not even an actor. And the narrator says, uh, hold on, before you leave, you must know this was not according to the will of God. God was not pleased. It's like, God is not going to be left out of the picture even if he has to send the narrator in. That's the bottom line. God was not pleased. 
Look at Psalm 11, just to remind yourself. Verse 4 and 5. God's activities. Psalm 11. It's such a huge theme throughout Scripture. But the character of God is often not known. Psalm 11, verse 4 and 5 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. That's enough. You get the picture. God is in heaven. He's sitting on his throne, which is where we want him, because there he can control everything. The world doesn't spin out into chaos because God's on his throne. But on the throne, he's got eyes. And the eyes see. He says, wait, let's get more accurate. Not only do the eyes see everything, the eyes literally test everything. And he tests the sons of men. He knows what's right and he knows what's wrong and he's taking notes. He's always testing us. He knows what we do. You know, uh, I, God, the psalmist says, never slumbers or sleeps. He doesn't miss anything. He writes it down, and you get that in 2 Samuel 27. It says, wait, 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 before you leave, God's taking notes. The thing that David has done is evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, sometimes we think God's absent, Right? You remember Martha, she thought Jesus was absent. When Lazarus, her brother, dies, Jesus shows up and she says, Jesus, 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 if you had just been here, he wouldn't have died. It's like your absence means certain good things couldn't happen. And Jesus, of course, you read the story, says, I wasn't physically here, but I, I saw everything. The... The silence of God is not the absence of God. Even though he's silent in this story all the way through, it doesn't mean he's not there. He sees everything that happens and he writes it down. He knows the events of our lives, good and bad, 24-7. He knows what pleases him and what does not please him, which is why we must take sin seriously. Don't just write this message off and say, well, that's not me. How often are we committing adultery? God sees. God knows. The solution is to confess it to him. The word confess means to agree with God. God, you're right. You see this. I have been trying to cover it and keep it from you. I confess now. I'm an open book. See me. I'm a sinner. Cover me with the blood of Christ. I need to be cleansed from all. And that's where we get in Psalm 51 that David writes right after this. It's like, I am so guilty, God. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So if that's where you are this morning, I encourage you, take sin seriously. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from every appearance of evil. Don't just abstain from evil. Seek to abstain from every 
form and appearance of evil to be pleasing to our God. <coughs> you know, I'm not glad David failed. Are you? It's a sad story. I'm, I'm not glad he committed adultery. I'm not glad he committed murder. I don't, it doesn't excite me. And we need to be there too. We read a story like this and say, oh, it's so sad. And that's the story of our lives. When we sin, it's not a good thing. It's a sad thing. We're now on the path of destruction. And the only way off is to ask Jesus to take us off. Can you take me and create in me a clean heart? Can you give me righteousness that's not my own? That I could be pleasing to Jesus? That's where we are. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. Help us not to play with sin. We're, we're in a world that so plays with sin. We can't watch a show. We can't go to a site without seeing examples of people in the church and outside playing with sin. Lord, may we have stronger conviction that sin matters. And may we turn from the sin in our own hearts right now and confess it to you, God. We are a people who need cleansing. None of us are free apart from Jesus. Cleanse us, O Christ. Set us free. Take away all the ravages of sin. And let us pursue what is righteous, holy, and pleasing in your sight. Father, if there are those here in this room that they've never come out of sin, not once, may they see the hope of life without sin. May they be changed by you. Grant them a new heart. May they cry out, Lord, have mercy on this sinner and forgive them, Lord. Make them one of yours. For we delight in being your children who love you and follow your ways. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.